Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Take nine. Rolling. It's 1977. In four and a half years, split ends have progressed from playing pubs and university halls in New Zealand and Australia to playing pubs and university halls in the United Kingdom and United States. Their records have sold reasonably well in Australasia and not at all elsewhere. Founding members Phil Judd and Mike Chun have just left the group, so the band has two new members, Englishman Nigel Griggs on bass and 18-year-old Neil Finn from Tawamutu on guitar. And Neil has never played electric guitar before. We knew he could write songs and, and that was good to have in the band, another, another potential songwriter. Neil's brother and split-end singer and songwriter, Tim Finn. He was also steeped in the whole lore of the band, if you like, and, and sort of had been around it since he was 13, so there was no problem about fitting in. Drummer Mal Green. So Neil flew over from New Zealand, very excited and enthusiastic, but he couldn't bloody well play guitar. <laughs> Nigel Griggs. Well, it was a risk. I think the band always chose the person, regardless of whether they could do the job. And believing that the person was the person they thought they were, they could come through. Guitar had never really been a major issue in the band anyway. Keyboard player, Eddie Rayner. I mean, the keyboards and the rhythm section up until then had always been the backbone of the sound because we'd never had a really strong guitar player. I mean, I had total faith in Neil anyway. I just thought, I mean, he's such a talented little bugger. That was just a golden time, really, for me. I was young and doing something incredibly romantic. Neil Finn. And playing with my favourite band. and I had a massive amount of energy, and the very first day I ever recorded, I was setting up my little Vox amp in the studio and then walked George Martin just casually sauntering into the room and up to me and said, oh, I like, that looks like a nice box you got there. And, uh, you know, I was pretty blown away by that. Before I'd even played a note, there was George Martin all of a sudden. It felt like a, a you know, a visit from a deity, a blessing of sorts. Nigel Griggs had joined Split Ends on bass just a few days before Neil's arrival. Nigel clicked in the first practice. It was incredible. It was a little bit of a culture shock for him, probably for, for us as well, but he just seemed to be such a cool guy, you know, laid back and good feel. That was what Nigel brought with Malcolm as well. Nail it to the floor and just provide a solid base for the rest of the band to sit on top of, you know. All of a sudden everything felt really solid. It felt like a new band. The new Split Ends returned afresh to Air Studios in London for the recording of their third album, Dysrhythmia. Tim Finn. It was exciting. I mean, we had all these songs and I was the sort of, I guess, 
lead songwriter, lead singer at that point, I'd start to feel like whatever I wanted to do I could try and the band were there for me and Renee Gayer came in and we played her Wouldn't It Be Nice To Know and she said oh she'd been waiting to hear us play like that. Producer's chair this time was the Beatles recording engineer, Jeff Emmerich. He was amazing, fantastic to work with. I had no context because I'd never worked with anybody else, so um, it was a pretty, <laughs> pretty good way to start, really, when I think about it, for a young fella from Tiamudu, suddenly working with the Beatles' prime engineer. Jeff was a strange guy, or unusual. Didn't say very much. Was never very coaxing, verbally. He was an eccentric guy, really quite nervy and, um, you know, very nice and that, but quite scattered and he'd arrive at the studio in a lather of sweat. Um, when we would just assume he'd been swimming or something. We'd say, you oh, know, he's been for a swim, Jeff. No. <laughs> he was a bit of an enigma of Jeff. I never really got to know him. Him and uh, Colin Fairley, the engineer, those two would disappear to the pub every lunchtime and they'd come back quite sloshed, you know. <laughs> every afternoon. They found Noel really funny and he'd do his passes on his percussion. All these hooters and bangers and whistles and strange quirky percussion and they'd just end up at, down below the desk dissolving in laughter. No, I mean it sounds cruel but it wasn't really but it was just that they'd never seen anything like Noel and he's you know in those days looking incredibly strange in a very formal kind of way you know. With the crowds in the dark, drums we play. Loving and laughter, we both know what we're after. And the dark seem a lot left to say. Come like a habit, come like a ritual, say.
without a doubt was a great track at the time and still stands up really well. Quite odd and like things like singing through a harmonica at the beginning of the song and and I was also very happy with some of the electric guitar stuff that I ended up with on that track. And it wasn't a lot of electric guitar, but it was all really it had a really good effect. Without a doubt, one of Tim's best ballads for me. Nigel Griggs. We didn't arrange it very well. I think it was too long and drawn out. I don't think it was the best arrangement, but I thought it was a lovely song, beautiful song. Like this playback incredibly loud. Saxophonist and trumpet player Rob Gillies. So physically loud that it was stunned us all. Uh, that was good. <laughs> he had a lot of technical knowledge. Well, I liked him, he made the uh, trumpet sound good. mistake sounds great even today. It's got a real warmth about it. It's kind of very, very simple song, very simple sentiment behind the song, behind the lyrics. Very simply arranged. It's a bit nutty, a bit potty, kind of vaudeville-ish in its sound, and that's exactly the way the band was at that particular time. Make me sound 
and that did quite well as a single. And I think we might have been consciously trying to become more accessible. This is what you have to do if you want to have a hit single, and we want to have a hit single. In a sense, you need to have one because that's how you, you're earning your living. to it now, I really like this review now, it's, uh, when you're in a band you always think that the next album is better than the one before, but now looking back I think this rhythm is one of the best albums, and it surprises me when I listen to things like Boulder's Brass, how much leeway I was allowed, and not, not only allowed, but encouraged to really go for it at times as bass player. That's very much driven by the um, acoustic guitar, bass and drums, um, mainly by Nigel's brilliant bass playing potty little song, I can remember Tim having written the melody and the, and the chords and I think he was sort of ruminating with Robert about how hard lyrics were to write and how much had to, how demanding they were to write and um, Rob said, oh look I could dash off some lyrics in five minutes for that. Tim almost dared him to do it, so Rob went into the toilet and came out with a bunch of lyrics about five minutes later <laughs> and that's what's on the record. <laughs> myself more as a writer. I, as soon as I wrote Charlie I knew that something significant had kind of happened. Um, I was always disappointed in the recording of that song. I can remember Tim being very um, strained when he, when he did that vocal and I think Jeff interpreted that strain as um, emotional wrung outness.
can remember Jeff Emmerich sitting in the studio with his head in his hands, sort of almost. He looked like he was crying, and he and he looked up. He said, "That's absolutely gorgeous, absolutely beautiful." And it was the worst vocal Tim's ever done, and that vocal remains on that song today. I mean, I don't know what Tim thinks of it, but I still think it's shit house. a little overwrought perhaps on dysrhythmia but you know there's something about it that's pretty magical I, I always remember John Cale when he came to Auckland one stage years later saying that he thought Charlie was a beautiful song and it, it meant a lot that he would say that um, and it's certainly live it's been you know a long-standing favorite Manager John Hopkins lined up a 14-day tour of the UK, which Split Ends did in the middle of the Dysrhythmia recording sessions. These shows, their first with Neil and Nigel, were very well received. Strangely enough, the first gig we ever did was literally in my hometown, St Albans, which is about five miles from Hatfield where I was born. Nigel Griggs. I mean, a lot of people thought Split Ends were pretty weird and what the hell do you want to join them for? And I believed on that first night that everybody was there judging me in, in a ridiculously looking suit, you know, pale blue one I had with the buttons didn't join up in the right places. So that was fairly traumatic first night, but after that it was like easy as pie after that, I just loved it. And Noel fixed us all up one night, you go and see Noel gives you a haircut, say try this on, and oh yeah, okay. It really freed you up. Because people thought it was a bunch of extroverts, I always thought we were a bunch of introverts, getting freed up by disguise or whatever. Yeah. So I think it was a fantastic style that Noel created for us. Robert Gillies. I think we're feeling pretty good with our new lineup, new material, and probably, you know, without the random nature of Phil, we could be a bit more consistent, you know, night after night. With a 28-day tour of the UK lined up for November 1977, 
Split ends were given a slot on the BBC TV and radio show Sight and Sound. They performed in front of 10 million viewers. Percussionist and art director Noel Crombie. It was great to get the opportunity to be on telly because it was quite difficult. We did a couple of Top of the Pops performances, but after the sort of history we'd had with Countdown, it was sort of disappointing how hard it was to get on telly there. Ah, right, the Sight and Sound show. We blew that one. Well, we didn't appreciate, I don't think, how it worked back then. In, in other words, we got offside of the technicians by doing things like insisting that we did the lighting. We did it, we, we, we told the makeup people, no, go away, we do our own makeup. Well, it's heavily unionised there, and that's doing people out of a job sort of thing. So they didn't think that was very flash. And since they control the um, aspects of the end product, you're ill-advised to rub them up the wrong way. I think the sound was pretty appalling. Neil Finn. I do remember it being a bit of a nightmare personally because my guitar wasn't working for the entire first song and, and I spent that whole time kind of quietly panicking and trying to get it happening. I think it came right, but it was the whole gig was kind of affected by that incredibly anxious beginning. And when you look at it now, what gets me about it is how incredibly nonplussed the audience are to the extent that Tim has to encourage them to clap because they don't know when to clap. And how um, totally committed we were to being strange all the time. <laughs> I can remember very stunned sort of silences at the end of songs. Like we'd finish it, boom! Then you go, you there? <laughs> then it'd be a sort of, ah, you know. And I suspect that, that a lot of people watching had a similar response. Like, you know, what? <laughs> what the hell? Boldly masked in paint and fineries. Welcome us, we do you, and our call to arms is clear. If music be the food of love, split ends be silverware. I wasn't very adept at putting on the makeup at that point. I used to go very thick eyebrows, I think, and one little tuft of hair that was popped up at the back as a like a Dennis the Menace kind of look, and big lips and I'd glasses, that's right, yeah, that I still think maybe are somewhere, I think I found them again recently, but still tinged with makeup. And there used to be wear unbelievable layers of theatrical makeup that I used to be very slapdash about washing off, and I think my skin has really suffered as a result of wearing that makeup actually. And we'd get it off with tissues and, and just cold cream, and like, it was so abrasive, and when I think about it, God, probably not, got poisoned. Despite the television exposure and the successful live shows, UK radio still wasn't paying much attention to the ends. Tim Finn. You know, there was a sense of backs to the wall. It was soon to come around 78 as well. But, um, you know, it was already the start of that feeling of it hadn't gone as fast or as quick as we thought it might. We weren't the, the biggest band in the world. You know, maybe we had to sort of think again. And it was there was a lot to prove. And so every time we went on stage, we kind of took it to the limit. And we always, you know, we always did that every night regardless of where the gig was or how many people or whatever so there was a fantastic strength in that and in rehearsals as well were always really really good and exciting a little further south down in surrey the recently departed split ends member phil judd 
was making ends meet by writing songs with the support of Australian Mushroom Records boss Michael Gudinski. Gudinski had said, I'll pay for you to live in the country for six months, come up with some songs, demo them and we'll take it from there. And so me, my missus and my little kid were plonked into the middle of the country in England and I was expected to work magic um, with a little four track, or two track, for a while. came down, heard them and said, yeah, some good stuff there. And then Tim heard them and said the same thing. And then Tim came down to visit me and we went for a long walk and had a talk about things. And that was sort of during that walk, I vaguely remember that it was decided that um, mutually between Tim and me, um, that I should come back in the band and unfortunately Rob would have to go. Eddie Rayner. Phil was always quite a romantic and he would, he would almost woo Tim. And I was right there with Tim, you know, I was thinking, yeah, great, be great to have Phil back in the band, he's great. Not considering, um, not considering, uh, what's his name? Rob, for one, for, for, one, for one instant. It was terrible, really. Tim and John got me to go to Holland to watch them play their last few gigs with Rob, and that was really horrible because everybody knew that Rob was going to get the biff except Rob, and so I was travelling around with them and... Um, and then Rob did get the flick. A group with eight people, it would be too big. Even seven was pretty uneconomic. And I was never that flash as a musician. So I was duly sacked. It was a pretty emotional time and pretty heavy time in a funny way. And it just shows, I suppose, the, the strength of the loyalty and the, and the belief that I had in what Phil and I could do together, that I would take that step and ask Rob to step down, you know, and... I, I don't feel badly about it, neither does Rob. Robert took his trumpet back to New Zealand, and Phil returned to the ends with his guitar, becoming best mates with the band's other guitarist, Neil. He and I were sharing a room at the time, and we went jogging together and cooked up our little packet sates. Yeah, Phil has got a very perverse sense of humour, and he would, his idea of a funny thing to do would be go and fix a really good meal and go and knock on Tim's door and eat it, and, and have Tim open the door and be eating and go, Mmm, this is so good knowing that Tim hadn't prepared anything for dinner. And I bought into it, being young and stupid. In a way, the heart of a band is its humour, I reckon. That's what fuels it. So many things conspire against a band staying together. As long as it's fun, it generally is worth it.
played a few live shows and it was great having two electric guitars and Neil and Phil were playing pretty well together and there was an excitement there and a heaviness there. I mean we were doing some fantastic gigs at the time and the gigs were really really growing in stature in terms of crowds coming we were packing them out and um, there was a real vibe about the band. It was good playing to uni crowds that tour I remember that because uni students always are good they're always prepared to let go of it. The Split Ends UK tour of early 1978 featured a number of Phil's new songs. After this tour, the band never played them again. Play It Strange is a lost classic. Nigel Griggs. Play It Strange, real gem. I know Eddie was, Eddie was always big on Play It Strange and always knew that it was a good one that got away. Play It Strange was quite Led Zeppelin-esque. In fact, very Led Zeppelin-esque. That's a great song, it still is. It deserves to be given its due at some point. I don't know if it ever was, really. There's a song called Play It Strange. Three, four. Play It Strange Won't you play it So strange Come on and play it So strange
I don't ever feel that we gelled properly with those songs. Malcolm Green. And I think that's partly because Phil was just a bit too isolated and the ends was a big team. It really was a big team. You know, all for one, one for all, all that kind of stuff. And I don't think Phil quite fitted into that. Tim Finn. I really liked them. I, you know, I loved them. I thought they were great. I always loved his songs. And it was, there was, we were trying to recapture something, I suppose, or see if it was still there, perhaps, might be more accurate, and uh, it kind of wasn't. thing that his songs he writes in cliches if you criticize it would be like greeting card mentality almost because he really likes pop songs in the way that you can be kind of a bit cheeseball and but it's always got a sting in its tail generally you know it'll have some kind of bitter aside that will haul it out from that greeting card mentality Split ends were firing on all cylinders as a live band, but their poor record sales in Britain were concerning their UK label, Chrysalis. The relationship was all too quickly terminated. They wanted to get the band to do a single before they committed to another album, and the band wanted to do an album, and that was that. And Michael Gadinsky probably at the time thought it was a good way of cancelling all debts and starting afresh, but everything fell apart at that point business-wise. We didn't like the way Hopkins was doing things and we didn't want Gunitsky involved anymore after a while and it didn't seem to make sense anyway because he wasn't on the spot. We pretty much fired everybody. We fired the record company, we fired Austra- um, the Australian record company Mushroom and we fired John Hopkins. I was really happy about all that. Tim and I used to make most of the decisions about this sort of thing from what I can remember anyway. For me, it was just like, oh, well, let's go and get another manager. We'll just go and get another manager. We'll go and get another record company, no problem. God, we were stupid. Well, I was anyway. But there's the test. I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to break up. We had so much debt, it would have been probably better to break up and change our name and carry on with a new name to get rid of it. We had so many problems. 
But in truth, what was happening, we were still playing every day and still writing songs every day. There were songs coming out of everywhere. Tim had so many songs at that stage. And, of course, Neil was starting to write as well. And the band was always working together. Neil and Noel were working on little things together. And me and Mal and Eddie were working on stuff together. So it was a very prolific time. One, two, three, four. One half of home recording outfit, The Ninnies, Neil Finn. The Ninnies was just Noel and I, and occasionally Tim. Noel and I were fortunate enough to have this beautiful little cottage. A funny, ancient little place. Nothing was square in it. Had a great address. It was number one Apple Tree Dell Dog Kennel Lane, Chorley Wood. I remember sort of writing it off proudly to everyone when we moved there, thinking, you know, they won't believe this. <laughs> he and I had identical tape recorders, cassette blaster boxes, I suppose. We just multi-tracked with them by playing, uh, recording on one of them and then playing along with it onto the other, and uh, we got quite a lot of memorable recordings out of that. And a few good songs begun that way, one being Give It A Whirl. tripping I think when we were doing it so it was a bit of drivel really but well, it was really fun we'd be sometimes there at dawn banging on pots and pans and Noel sort of bowing mandolins and playing jaws harps as the old ladies next door would go down to the shop and they'd look and just look in the window and wonder what the hell was going on in that little flat next door to them in mid-1978 Split ends were living in London on the smell of an oily rag, with no record company support and no manager. Phil Judd, with a family to feed, felt the pinch the hardest. For the umpteenth and final time, he left the band, this time returning to New Zealand. Things began to look up for split ends when the Queen Elizabeth II Arts Council in New Zealand agreed to fund the band to the tune of $5,000. At the same time, they were offered a management contract by an agent in the UK. Although the manager gave up on them after only one month, the ends felt spurred into action. It was at this time that they recorded the legendarily energetic demos, the Rootin Tootin Lootin tapes. Noel Crombie. Out of that period there'd been a lot of work done on a lot of songs, so we got the opportunity through some studio connection to go and just demo some songs at this studio in Luton. Squeezed into this little funny sort of studio, you know, set everything up and played all together. Eddie Rayner. About the size of my bedroom, the whole studio. There was an upright piano in one corner, 
Everybody was in the same room, just sort of separated by little baffle things. Really close. I mean, Tim and I were right up against each other. He, I was playing keyboards and he was playing some piano. We could barely fit, you know. I, I couldn't sort of play my keyboard without jabbing him in the, in the eye every now and then. And Noel was in the toilet. <laughs> he was, had his, all his percussion set up in the toilet. But there was a surreal sense of joy, you know, and, and a real release that's you know, evident in those recordings. And we recorded them all in two days, I think. But there's 26 songs, you know. She got body, she got soul. I'm torn apart without her. I'm gonna trust her with my future. I'm gonna keep a tight rein on her heart. She's one of the few things I feel a part of. I know it's true, I'll never leave, I'll never say goodbye. I'll always be a man of means as long as I'm by her side. Tapes are good, you know. There's some really good versions of songs. You know, Herman McDermott is better than the one ended up on Frenzy.
was a very, very long, hard year, 1978. We had no manager, no record label, but it was sort of the making of the band. I think what came on after that, 79, 80, 81, 82, etc., was, was really a product of us being desperate and just playing for ourselves and writing lots of songs, you know, songs like I See Red and Hermit McDermott and, and Semi-Detached and that were coming along and there was, you know, there was an edge and an angst and a kind of desperation in those songs that wouldn't have come otherwise. We weren't going to give up, there was just no way. Frozen 